Welcome to episode 7 of the Heart Podcast, everyone. In today's episode, we focus on intergroup dialogue and anti-racist teaching. Specifically, our guests will be guiding us through their process of how they help facilitate conversations between members of various social identity groups in an effort to create new levels of understanding, relating, and ultimately loving one another. Join us as we delve deeper into these themes and hear how our guests integrate their knowledge in the classroom. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, and Nipmuc peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Thank you, Omar. Joining us today is Danielle DeRosa, who is a clinical instructor in the Sport Management Program at the University of Connecticut. In her role, Danielle oversees the instruction of the experiential learning of undergraduate students in sport management. She also co-teaches with me the only graduate-level intergroup dialogue course at UConn. Also joining us is Dr. Ronnie Varghese, who is an associate professor at the School of Social Work at Adelphi University. With a background in social work, social justice education, and women, gender, and sexuality studies, Ronnie brings an interdisciplinary and intersectionality approach to her teaching and research. She also teaches intergroup dialogue at Adelphi University. With us also today is Dr. Wilson Okello, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Educational Leadership at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. His research focuses on black feminisms in education, anti-blackness in educational contexts, and anti-deficit curriculum and pedagogy, which we will hear more about throughout the episode. All right, everyone, we hope you are as excited to learn from them as we are. Let's get started. Danielle, Ronnie, and Wilson, thank you again for being here with us today. All of you are involved with research or teaching or both um, related to intergroup dialogue, which is often referred to as IGD. From your perspective, what is IGD and what does it entail in terms of your teaching? Wondering also if you could speak to how anti-racist teaching shows up in your IGD teaching. Danielle, would you be willing to get us started on the conversation today? Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So I teach intergroup dialogue, as you had just said, and a spoiler alert for those on the call, Milagros and I actually co-teach an intergroup dialogue course, so I'll refer to that, I'm sure, throughout this episode. Um, But in our course, we center race as a social identity, so really it's the opportunity for students to, to dialogue across racial identity. And we do that throughout an entire semester, leading them through four phases in which they get to get to know each other. They have the opportunity to learn a bit more about historical context. We get to dialogue around contentious issues. And then we have the opportunity to think about what the path forward is for the students in terms of um, alliance building or being an accomplice to each other. And really, we've started to see it as a shared responsibility that we have to each other. And the students helped us to understand it as that. When I think about anti-racist teaching and the connection between intergroup dialogue and anti-racist teaching, I think that there's a lot of underlying fundamental values that I bring to the classroom as someone who's facilitating dialogue and also think about when I'm thinking about anti-racist teaching. So some of those things would be kind of this essence of love and humility and humankind uh, two years ago, we had the opportunity to bring in pa- Paolo Ferreri's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And he really helps us to think about 
this idea of profound love and kind of faith in each other and in humankind and how that can drive us in dialogue to be hopeful. And we've really been thinking about that over the past years. And the reason that I'm connecting it to anti-racist teaching, Milagros, you helped us to understand or to think a few minutes ago about how sometimes anti-racist teaching or anti-racist work could be looked at kind of being in opposition to and pushing against something. And I absolutely think that, and I think that's part of the way that I orient myself to anti-racist teaching, but I also think that love is part of that too. So rather than fighting against kind of the opening of someone's heart and just really being and acknowledging humility and humanity and what happens when we're able to do that. And that's extremely vulnerable and I think takes a lot of trust, but I think can be really transformative if one, myself as an educator can commit to that and I can also cultivate along with whoever I'm facilitating with a classroom space that enables that for our students too. Yeah, that's that's really powerful because love is something that in, from my perspective, it's central to anti-racist work, um, but often a taboo word or maybe even idea when it comes about thinking about the academy and what learning really means. So I'm curious, Ronnie, would you be able to chime in and share what are your thoughts about IGD and how it connects to anti-racist teaching and maybe even your thoughts on this idea of love being central to that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if it's helpful to, you know, I, I, I don't know, Milagros, in other podcasts, have we, we explained what IGD is in terms of like, so, you know, so I think it's always important uh, to name what intergroup dialogue is. So it's the evidence-based model that first came out of the University of Michigan that brings people together of either different identity groups, so intergroup dialogue or similar identities, intergroup dialogue to have conversations that folks um, may not have or have the opportunity to have around social justice issues using a particular curriculum. Many intergroup, di there are intergroup dialogue programs across the country, intergroup dialogue courses um, across the country and ac across the globe. And it, um, as, as Danielle said, it's a four part um, model, four part model for, or stages. Um, first is like uh, understanding yourself, helping building. A, a container for dialogue of building a community. Second, understand yourself in terms of your identities. Um, the third is to dialogue about hot topics. And the fourth is to take action. And so for me, part of building that intentional community or building that community with love is really looking at the building blocks of dialogue, which is around deep listening. So one of the pieces of research I was involved in um, in looking at intergroup dialogue was part of originally part of that nine, uh, nine college study looking at the impact of dialogue. And a lot of times when we think about dialogue, we really focus on voicing, but our work was really looking at the power of deep listening. And so I think, again, if we think about what, what, it, what love embodies, I think it's deep listening, having respect, um, holding judgments or biases, um, being reflective and um, engaging in inquiry um, and and learning how to use your voice in thoughtful and um, productive ways. And so for me, the building blocks of dialogue really embody um, what sort of we're saying is, is love. And I think part of um, what is powerful for me about intergroup dialogue is 
the use of self. And again, use of self is a term that um, you know I use in social work, particularly clinical social work. But um, for me, it, you know, many diversity and equity courses um, center content, and I think process is part of it in terms of processing the content. But I think with IGD, they center both the process and the content, so that um, you're intentional, like you engage the content through process, you're intentional about how you set up the course. It forces you to slow down the process um, in ways that are very different um, than other courses. Sometimes I, I, I didn't coin this, but I, a student in one of my classes once used the word like social justice cruise control. And I, and I was thinking about like when you're driving and you just press, like you're just, the car is going. And so for me with IGD, it forces me to sit up and Engage in a very um, different different way, so I'll I'll stop there. I mean, I could talk more about like race and IGD, but I'll, I'll you know hand it off to someone else. Uh, powerful, powerful offerings, and and so thank you, um, Ronnie, for that uh, the reflection and really this uh, merging of process and content, and really walking us through the steps. Danielle, I'm uh, I was struck just by your. Uh, this infusion of love, and so I wasn't preparing to go here uh, at this particular point, but I'm glad that you 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 took us there, because uh, I agree with you. I think that love is oftentimes uh, read as uh, not only taboo, but oftentimes um, we view it as sort of this uh, romantic or um, so we only think about it in sort of the romantic sphere, if you will, right? And so, what does it mean to really sort of take up love? Um, as a critical practice, right? So how might we begin to uh, to love? Um, and, and, and in my work, I'm trying to think about what it means to intentionally love uh, Blackness in particular, right? And so what does it look like uh, to, to affirm uh, a bodily presence, a, a spiritual presence, a, uh, a mental, emotional, spiritual, spatial uh, uh, sort of being in this world that is mediated by history um, in full and um, affective ways, right? And so I'm thinking about Bibi Suggs uh, in, in Beloved, Toni Morrison takes us here um, and she talks about uh, this space in the clearing in particular. And she, um, she writes that Baby Suggs was inviting us into sort of this collective love response. And I almost see that as a form of dialogue, right? The call and response uh, that was uh, enacted in that particular moment is inviting a communal love practice. She's saying, love your flesh, love it hard, right? She's inviting us to say that um, in a world uh, where you're gonna move beyond this place where they don't love you, we have to think about what it means for us to intentionally, uh, to not only uh, uh, sort of care for ourselves, but to love ourselves uh, in some really powerful ways. And so I think about uh, uh, IGD at its best as a communal practice of seeing, right? Of of feeling and, on, and, and of doing on behalf of uh, one another, right? Um, it's uh, the belief that individuals hold the capacity to make uh, decisions about their lives and their communities, right? Because oftentimes, as I think as educators who are equipped with particular knowledge and training, uh, we believe, even if we say we don't sometimes, right, that we have the answer or we can steer individuals in directions that allow them, uh, move them towards solutions about their communities and about their lives, right? IGD, I think at its best, right, um, allows for individuals to, to, to take ownership, right? Or, to, or returns power to individuals to make decisions about what their lives can be, uh, what they ought to be. It's a belief that they have 
uh, and have been doing the work uh, um, uh, to negotiate uh, the problems uh, that are present in their lives. And so um, I'm thinking about, um, you know, again, IGD at its best as um, a space of representation. I'm thinking about it as a space of, of embodiment, um, of bringing the body to bear in the classroom. And I'll probably talk about this a little bit more as I, as I go throughout, but it really sort of hones in on my commitments to Black feminist practice. Um, and so I'll, I'll pause there um, and um, just kind of invite others into the conversation, but that's sort of uh, where I was going, uh, or what I'm thinking about uh, when, I, when I hear this notion of love and um, IGD um, at its best. I had something to build off that. So part of the question I realized after you asked the Milagros was this idea of what does entail in terms of teaching? And I think we all touched on it a bit, but actually Wilson, when you were just talking about this idea of a communal practice and seeing, feeling, doing, um, disrupting this idea that, you know, teacher has the answer and everyone is there to learn the answer from the teacher. Ronnie, you mentioned this as well. One thing that we've done in our class through the years is this notion of unclassing the class because i think all of these things that we all just mentioned as part of our practice are really counterintuitive to the ways in which um, many of us are taught to see education or our place as educators and our students place students um, so for us in our classroom you know that looks like a lot of things but when i was thinking about unclassing the class for some reason I just thought about, I have two kids and when my son was in kindergarten, I would try to go into his classroom every so often. And I remember at first it just being this place that was awesome. Like I instantly loved it. And I think as I reflect back, the thing that I loved the most about it was that it was playful. It was fun. It was unexpected. It was kind of like all the things that I felt like I had lost through my time. Mm -hmm in education, but then in there, you know, just being there with the kids um, was amazing. And then thinking uh -huh. about our classroom that we've created, it's like what happens in the educational process and that we lose these characteristics and then how do we recapture them back? So some of the things that we have done is invite food into the classroom. Like we have one class where we literally um, set it up to look like a kitchen. We put tablecloths on the tables, we have flowers, we have food. Um, and we just use that as a communal space to connect with each other. So I don't know if anyone else has experiences or if that unclassing the class is something that mm -hmm. you all have done, but. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, IGD, you know, I described it as sort of like, you know, this model, right? This model that, you know, you have the curriculum, you have four. But I think IGD as a principle or practice is something I, use in all my classes. Like I do teach an intergroup dialogue course where I introduce undergrad students to IGD, give them an opportunity to participate in an IGD dialogue around a, a range of isms. And then I give up, um, give them a chance to co-facilitate and I move out of the, the classroom and allow them to, uh, you know, facilitate um, a conversation um, with their peers around the things that, which I think, um, Wilson, you, you mentioned about things that are important that matter to them and their community across a range of identities. And because most, um, co-teaching, most co-teaching models, at least in my institution are not compensated, right? Like IGD is usually co-taught. Um, I have to, I draw on friends and family in the community. So talking about love, folks come to my class because they love IGD. They love me. They love 
working with students and co-facilitate this these range of hot topics. Um, and so I think that is really important. And yes, I think um, I, I say to students um, at, at first, I, I was like, this seems like, you know, should I say this? I said, you know, IDD will change your life. And there, and I, I have found, I was like, okay, I'm going to lean into it. It, it has changed. Um, it changed my life. It changed, you know, I think it's changed the student's life because not only are they using these skills of dialoguing in the classroom, it's they're using it with their partners, with their families. And I think some of that work is is critical. It's, you know, again, like oppression can gut you in this way and it allows them to feel hopeful and and look at it from, again, like not anti, but racial justice, you know, um, looking, framing it from a place of liberation. And so, and, and, and again, I use it in, 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 in faculty meetings, right? Like I try to embody this and it's hard work. And I think you named it earlier. I wrote down hard and head connection and, you know, um, folks, I think one of the other podcast members talked about like heart work as it's hard work. And I really see that. Um, so, yes, and I bring in food to all my classes, although this semester has been, you know, this year has been really hard of how you think of IJD, this interpersonal face to face practice and do it on zoom. So, you know, I, I, I've, I've been creative. I'm, you know, bringing in music. I'm, you know, I'm trying to create recreate transform this online space in ways that are meaningful and and allows connection because they're so disconnected. Um, in this online world right now. I, I really appreciate those points. And um, Danielle, I'm thinking about um, uh, what you put forth as this idea of unclassing uh, the classroom. I think it's really important. I've, I've, so I'm thinking about it in conversation with this notion of unschooling that sort of takes place. And, and what I hear in that is this notion of um, inviting a sort of self-directed type of learning, right? So how might um, we not only um, think about what it means to be facilitators, but invite individuals to chart um, the direction of their learning, right? Um, and so, yeah, so I, so I appreciate that, that notion, right? And it, I think there's the, the, um, the belief that individuals, again, have the capacity to, um, to make decisions about uh, their own lives and um, what matters to their community. So uh, there was another thought um, I, I had as it was, uh, oh, I, it was thinking about um, this notion Ronnie was mentioning about um, IGD and this liberatory potential. And so I, you know, I, I think IGD, and, I, and so I've mentioned this in my first um, sort of comments, but I think it at its best <laughs> um, has the potential to do these things, but I've, I've been trying to meditate on what white institutions do to liberatory pedagogies, right, and critical theories. And um, I think if we're not careful, um, I wonder how IGD can get swept up in sort of the uh, the, the the mechanics, uh, the sort of dispassionate, the, the uh, polite white supremacy that um, some exchange or some discourse favors in white institutions. And so I, I, I say IGD at its best, I think is rooted um, in um, diverse cultural practices, right? I think it was and existed long before we sort of thought about what it might look like within the institution. And so um, how might we return to that in and through cultural modes, right? And so whether food is one of them, uh, you talked about music, Ronnie, I think about art, right? I think about um, the body and dance. I think about um, 
other opportunities to engage in, in sort of these dynamic cultural practice, hip hop, uh, for example, free individuals up to express and be and uh, write to poet, to do all the things um, or to, to locate knowledge in a different place than in this sort of traditional linguistic uh, verbal, uh, sort of verbal exchange that I think IGD can sometimes favor. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to, to offer that as well. That's, that's just, okay, you all are just having me go to all these happy places in my head <laughs> and I can't even keep up with my own excitement as I'm listening to you all because I'm just like, oh yeah, that, oh, and that too, yes. Um, mm -hmm. and, and But I wanna connect to two things that I just heard, um, Wilson, with you mentioning the multimodal learning that's possible when IGD is at its best, you know, like it really does allow for there to be the unschooling, the un unclassing the class, like, you know, um, I think that that's really powerful because it's a disruption. So what you were saying is what happens to IGD when it gets kind of co-opted, but when it's at its best, it's actually the opposite of whatever is traditional teaching and learning. So you know when it's been co-opted, when it goes too smooth into the, mm -hmm. <laughs> into the scenario. And I mm -hmm. think even with students though, because students can even have some kind of like, wait, what's happening here? I thought I thought I was in a graduate course for a master's program or whatever it might be. That disruption is in is in the experience for everybody. And if it's not shaking up, how we're learning and what we're learning, then it isn't actually intergroup dialogue in, in its full form. Um, and But I also wanna go back to something, um, Danielle, you said earlier about unclassing the class. And you know, even those different approaches, whether it's turning the classroom into a kitchen or going out on a field trip and doing classrooms in, in, in different spaces, you know, like outside of a real classroom, just making different spaces, a learning space, uh, whatever that might be, something that it strikes, um, or at least I'm hearing is that students can learn in their full humanity and that that might spark joy in mm -hmm. learning. That I think, Ronnie, you were saying, like there's a way in which oppression and I think colonial and white supremacist learning guts particularly for black and indigenous and other racially minoritized students, guts the soul out of them along the way. And IGD is in a way, I never thought about this. So I would like you all to check me if I'm like, you're taking it in the wrong direction, but I'm hearing you all and it's making me think, is it like a restorative practice? Because are we restoring? And I don't mean restorative practice, like the framework I'm saying, is it restoring what's possible? when you teach with few, full humanity at the center of a teaching. I don't know, those, those are some thoughts that came to my mind and, and curious what you all think. You're making me think, so we do a final project called, uh, and Ronnie had mentioned you know, the, the framework before. So as part of the IGD framework, there was a final project called the ICP, the Intergroup Collaboratory Project. And that looks different for every class and the way that the instructors decide to teach it. But for us, what it has looked like over the years, I guess what's fundamental is that you're bringing students, so in our case, because we teach about race across racial identity together to work on a project together. And for our class, it's been a gallery walk and they have to create something visual that's tied to art. So 
Milagros, you just made me think about this idea of, you know, restoring some of this process for students. Um, and this project sticks out for me because it's always a struggle for some students and we get a lot of pushback and thinking about how are we going to express ourselves in this ways? There's questions about the syllabus, I mean, sorry, about the, the rubrics and how we're going to grade it. And, but then there's always a small group of students who just flourish in this project and they are so creative and it's so fun to watch them. And it just, I think it's this moment where I'm wondering, you know, it kind of makes all of the tedious detailed questions about the rubric and when it's due and how will it be submitted totally fine because I get to see this subset of students who are just loving this process and I can't imagine that they're asked to express their learning in this way really often and it's really powerful. So this is a really powerful point and example. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about so many of the classes I've taught over um, over time and the the number of um, what uh, I'll say black students, um, but I think broadly uh, black indigenous uh, people of color who will line the front of my classroom uh, um, in in some of the so introductory classes, for example. Um, and I think it's partially because of this sort of uh, ways they've been taught or trained to um, if I'm not seen in this sort of uh, Sort of white space. How do I ensure that the the faculty member or professor sees me, right? Um, and so, when we think about what it means to uh, to center, to not only decenter whiteness, but for me again, center uh, something else, center blackness. It it means sort of working uh, from an inverted space that says I'm not working up to the idea that something like racism or anti-blackness exists, but that's the beginning place, right? That's the the fundamental starting place um, we begin, and everyone else um, has an opportunity to to then, um, or I should say, it centers the experiences of folks um, who might be at the front of the classroom, but oftentimes, or for most of their schooling, have not um, have had to sort of participate in learning environments where um, I think whiteness was centered uh, in a way that said, uh, let's uh, be patient. Uh, with our uh, those who uh, don't have a firm understanding or who aren't don't have a lived experience, and um, let's um, let's be patient with them and allow them to sort of have free reign in the classroom. And so um, I mentioned that um, uh, to Danielle's point to say that um, I think something happens when we we center a different cultural practice in the classroom that allows individuals to move, to feel, to to express themselves differently. And I wonder what it looks like um, as a, um, I wonder what that could look like as um, as just a general way of being, right? So how do we invite individuals to rehearse a different way of being in the classroom? And I think as we center differently because of some of the practices within IGD, I think we invite individuals into a different type of freedom moving forward, right? Because they've been trained throughout their educational experience to say, this is how the classroom is going to go. But when you invite them into a different way of being, I think it allows them to begin to imagine different possibilities of being. And so, um, so I agree with you and uh, the practice that you're talking about sounds, um, sounds really important. I mean, I think for me, I was going back to the unclassic class. I think because my doctoral training is in social justice education, I felt like my doctoral training was all about unclassing the class. 
and IGD was one vehicle um, or approach to doing this, right? And I think for me, the ways in which we shift power or shift experiences for, you know, I'll just use myself because use of self is important. So, you know, as a South Asian woman who, in, you know, embodies this brown body and, and as somebody who grew up in Ohio in Cincinnati, the nasty natty, as we call it, to give it a little flavor. You know, I learned about anti-black racism as I was learning about anti-Asian racism, being in a black and white community at the University of Cincinnati and in this rap program. But it was also important to me in my social justice training to really understand the ways in which I had privilege. And so for me, when I co-teach IGD with my students, I bring in my former students who took class with me or current students. And I talk about my privilege around disability and they become, they get centered in a different way. So I think it's important to think about, um, or, or someone who is a person of color who has um, privilege around sexuality. So I, I think for me, I think part of this conversation is about like anti-racism and intersectionality and so, um, or racial justice and intersectionality. And, and I think for me, I, I've been trained in social justice ed, like my homes are social justice ed and women, gender, sexualities. Like I've been trained, I've been deeply influenced by black feminists. So I can't teach in any other way, but through this intersectional lens, right? I think about like Elsa Barkley Brown, who talk about women not having the same gender because the context of being women is really rooted in race, place, and time. And so for me, it's, I did, he also gives you, an opportunity for students to position themselves and think about how they hold multiple identities. So my experiences of being a South Asian woman is rooted in my gender and my class and my sexuality and my ability and my nationality and my language. And so I can't disentangle those. I don't, I don't know how, how to do it, um, how to do it. And I think it's important to hold up and unpack, go in and deep, but to hold these, um, these different identities and the interlocking system at the same time. Yeah, I, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about your your, your question, Lagos, and um, so in terms of what uh, what is restored, and uh, so I think about it as a political activity, right? Um, and so, how might we envision the classroom um, and and our pedagogies uh, to Ronnie's point as a as a political activity? And when we do that, I think there's always uh, something at stake uh, when we're what, in what we do and what we teach or what we decide not to teach and or not do in the classroom. And so, um, so I just, yeah, I, I appreciate the notion that um, we're uh, complicating identity. And uh, for me, um, and given my sort of commitments as well, I think about it, yeah, just very much as a political activity that we're, we're engaged in. And um, I don't know uh, what, and I, maybe I trouble the notion of restore since we've been in the pandemic and folks talk about getting back to this notion of a norm. But for me, I'm trying to think about what does it mean to imagine a new world altogether? And I think those are the sorts of things that um, I think our students are, are yearning for. It's not just sort of a return to, but a restoration of, but um, in imagining um, of what could be or is yet to be. So. I love that because you're right, like a restore assumes a place that was good before or nourishing before. When I think of restore, I think about a lot of my scholarship focuses on an asset-based view on what students already know, given their own 
racial, cultural identities and the communities that they come from, we often think that they, and I don't mean when I say we, I'm saying in higher education, there's like this perspective that they, you know, they come into your classroom and you just dump all this new knowledge in there, but, you know, so when I think I'm restoring, it's kind of like, what do we need to get out of the way so that you could be who you were always capable of being, but that we probably messed up and, and destroyed or somehow limited or thwarted with all these other restrictions about what was possible. So I like that combination about looking also forward to even things we haven't even imagined as possible yet, or even as, as, as something that we could, um, collectively create together, you know, um, which is really powerful too, to think about the collective imagination about what's possible. I'm curious to hear, Wilson, Danielle, um, if you intersectionality is something you also feel like somehow gets, how does that inform your teaching, if at all? I'm curious, given, you know, what Ronnie was saying about like, there's no other way that she can teach. And um, I really appreciate Ronnie that you know, the way you entered that into the conversation and how much of it is just like your path, like your work, your commitment, your training, but also who you are. Um, I'm curious what others think. Yeah, I would say for myself, thinking about, you know, I identify as a white woman. So thinking about the way in which race and gender and then identities such as sexuality, being able-bodied, um, my socioeconomic status, how all of those things come together to create who I am, how I experience the world and how the world experiences me. Um, and thinking about that, you know, in life form. And then also I think when I was thinking about this question prior to the podcast, I was also thinking about in our intergroup dialogue class, we, we do engage in intra-group dialogue. So we will have students um, engage in smaller group dialogues based on their racial identity. And that's complicated in of itself. And the ways in which we do it is that students who identify as white, the students self-identify for the purpose of when we engage in intra-group, uh, will engage in dialogues with me and um, the students who identify as students of colors with Milagros. We have a teaching assistant named Truth this year. And this year we did it where there was even separate um, readings for those students to think about their racial identity a bit more. So when I'm thinking about intersectionality, I'm both acknowledging that kind of like the culmination of who we are as people informs what we do, informs how we interact with the world, like I said before, but also there is this interest I have noticed including myself, among people who identify as white, to want to talk about other identities outside of race. So it's kind of holding intention with how do we allow for this, you know, whole person to be in the space? And also for me, as a white woman facilitating when I'm in intergroup dialogue with white students, how do I allow for people to bring the nuanced complexity of who they are, but also hold them accountable for talking about race in a really straightforward way, because I think that that is disruptive and needs it needs to be done, right? As we're naming white supremacy and like, so we need to name whiteness and we have to own whiteness in the ways that it shows up. And I do that for myself. I encourage my students to do that. So I'm just thinking about that as we also talk yeah. about intersectionality because it's a fine balance, I think. Mm. I mean, for me, I was gonna say, you know, for me, intersectionality is the relational nature of difference and similarity. So I would say, you know, Danielle, you, uh, you live the life you live because I, right? Because 
we it's it's intersectionality is not just embodied in our body it's the relational nature of difference and similarity and so for me you can't it's not like you throw race out but like you know a south asian woman you know and again i don't know how you all identify you name being a white woman wilson i don't know how you identify your you know race and gender but to me this is the conversation like it's not just you know it's it's because igd is relational it's about the intergroup intergroup experience as folks of color my south asianness and how south asians live next to in relationship to blackness i can't i, I can't not talk about blackness when i talk about asianness or south asianness so i think it's i think to me it's hard um hard not to do it agreed you know um so thinking about thinking about this notion of so so to your question, Malagos, I think about uh, power um, as I think about intersectionality. Um, that's, um, and I think about, uh, to Ryan's point, um, how do we exist in relationship to um, others and the world around us? And so, um, so if we are uh, particularly, um, it shows up in the sorts of questions and um, that I ask, right? And so trying to sort of complicate um, the, the sort of single issue, as Angelo might say, or the the uh, the simplified sort of um, um, sort of overlay of a of a um, of an issue, and trying to sort of think about what intersectionality intersectionality calls us to think about, which is sort of this compounding nature of oppressions um, and how that affects individuals differently, right? And so, for example, I begin uh, each class period with a uh, what's going on, like what's in the news, right? And so we we think about um, uh, you know, an issue or a headline, um, and but we think about that that sort of issue in relationship to uh, individuals who might encounter those things and how they might encounter it differently. So, me as a black cis head man, I will certainly perhaps experience this differently than um, than a black woman, right? Um, and um, how uh, does um, our sort of ways of being historically come to bear on how I'm seen and interpreted, right? Um, how are the ways in which society views and uh, what's projected onto Black women impact how they're going to be sort of seen and read, right? And so these are these are things that I hope to complicate, um, even if we're not naming intersectionality, intersectionality explicitly, um, but hoping to really draw out the compounding nature of oppressions and how individual lives are affected differently. And so for me, this is part definition work as well, because I think intersectionality um, is uh, probably one of the one of those those ideas that is oftentimes um, underdefined and oftentimes misappropriated and just yeah, so so uh, to the point that the, the originators of those who sort of wrote uh, initially about it uh, to the point that it's almost unrecognizable, right? We talk mm -hmm. about it as multiple identities, for example, and we sort of just leave it there. And um, and so that's why I sort of want to harken back to this notion of power and the compounding nature of it, um, because if we're not clear, right, about what this is, uh, what the uh, what the term, right, uh, and really what the uh, more than the, even the term, but what the, the the force and the thrust of the idea is calling on us to do, uh, then I think uh, we um, we minimize um, its potential after, uh, effect in our class. So, mm -hmm. I was just say, oh, Milagros, you said uh, IDD being co-opted, intersectionality has been co-opted. I think Jennifer Nash's book, 
uh, Black Feminism Reimagined right. really gets at that. I mean, I've heard her speak. I mean, she's really getting at, you know, name taking the origin um, and, and, you know, whether it's a, con you know, it's a concept theory, methodology, however we want to frame it, but that's been co-opted and it's been packaged in this way that's in some ways unrecognizable. Right, I know for sure. And I think that's why I was really excited about this conversation because IGD, even if you don't, those four kind of, you know, stages of IGD, even if you don't use the word intersectionality, gets at it because it is exposure to thinking about systems and structures and then thinking about that in connection to self and then thinking about that in connection to others and it's like this it is like there's this intertwining between the self others and systems and how they're operating and i feel like that to me is the conversation that can maybe make learning around intersectionality possible because it is an infusion of systems and structures with self and community and that infusion is is built into the phases you know into the structure yeah. rather of igd so i feel like it's a potentially like i like what wilson's saying at its best yeah. <laughs> igd is a really powerful way to maybe make that learning palpable you know um in the classroom so First of all, thank you all so much for, for sharing such a multidimensional perspective of IGD. Um, be honest, wasn't not too familiar with it prior to this to this episode. So thank you all for for enlightening me. Um, and, you know, Wilson, you mentioned something that really that really struck me as as we're slowly knock on wood, looking to return to spaces now uh, physical spaces now that, you know, COVID-19 is, is uh, at least in the United States, it's it's calming. Um, and you mentioned, Wilson, how, how can we reimagine a new world altogether, coming back to a new world? Not, not a world that we once knew, which was not great to begin with, yet there are these notions and rhetoric that it once was. And I, I don't think, I definitely don't think you're alone on that one. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, how I'm, I'm beginning to visualize how IGD can be used as the as a conduit, as a very healthy and loving conduit to dismantle systems of oppression. And I'm wondering for our audience that are in different spaces, whether they're whether whether we're talking about scholars, whether we're talking about activists, students, and just human beings in general, I'm curious to know what's one piece of advice that each of you could offer to our audience on enacting anti-racist teaching with a focus on intersectionality and perhaps in, in, in consideration of teaching IGD? I was going to say deep listening. I feel like the, the listening is, you know, again, I, I think deep listening, you know, listening with ting, right? Listening with your, your eyes, your head, your heart, um, your, um, your ears, like that kind of deep listening perspective taking. Um, for me, in terms of thinking about faculty, like honoring my disciplinary training, but utilizing other disciplines to help you think about your teaching for social justice and particularly racial justice. And also, you know, part of the issue with, I think, academia or the challenges is most faculty I meet have been trained in their disciplines. They haven't been trained how to teach in their discipline. So it's be, they haven't even been trained how to teach. So, you know, getting them to make what's invisible visible, what theories, what values, what scholars undergird your teaching, like what 
what is driving how you show up in the classroom, how you set up the classroom, who you call on, how you shape your assignments. And so I think for me, that's a start, just getting them to interrogate how and what they teach um, and then teaching them some skills around IGD, just around deep listening, locate positionality, speaking of political, when I ask faculty in DEI trainings to locate themselves, they, it's, it's like blows their mind. They haven't even thought about who they are as, as, as folks who, you know, are located in, in systems or uh, systems of identity. And so um, those are some of those places and do it in community. Like I am like, when I come and meet folks, I'm like, let's write together. Let's, let's, you know, let's come together and, you know, add to this community dialogue. So those are the things that came to mind. Uh, so Omar, as I'm, I'm thinking about your question uh, about how do we begin to imagine differently? Um, I think we, I think it begins by first asking ourselves this type of question, what type of world do we want? Right. Um, and as we, I think we ask that question, we can begin to sort of see how our practices, um, our pedagogies, um, our general ways of being, I think, create these own sort of regimes, right, or organized sort of uh, ways um, that we, ex uh, and expectations around what we, um, uh, what we believe should happen in the classroom, right? And so um, they lean into objectivity, they lean into uh, the neutrality, they lean into some of these uh, perhaps destructive forces that really don't um, invite this sort of freedom dreaming, uh, as Robin Kelly might mm -hmm. say, that um, I think is possible when we uh, participate uh, in an IGD sort of practice. And so, um, so um, what is the sound, look, and feel um, of this sort of new world, right? Um, and how might we invite individuals to consider um, what um, um, that they are knowers and have uh, the the capacity to uh, um, to do this type of type of dreaming. So I'm also wondering. I, I think um, in order for folks to uh, begin to live that out, they need to have places where they can practice it and to rehearse it, right? And so I think about the classroom as a site of rehearsal uh, more than anything. Is um, we can't expect the sort of coach, um, sort of uh, dia dialogic practice outside in our meeting spaces um, in um, you know, corporate spaces or anywhere else, if we haven't sort of invited individuals to literally rehearse what it looks and feels like to participate uh, in this sort of work in the, the classroom. And so think about our, um, to, so invite individuals to, to, um, to consider what type of world they want and begin to rehearse uh, those very things uh, as the political project of the classroom. Yeah, I love those ideas that you both shared. Um, one thing I was thinking about is, so Ronnie, you had mentioned community and I was thinking about relationships and I, I don't think that it's far off uh, from perhaps what you mentioned when you were talking about community, maybe it's a bit different, but just finding people to invest in this work with and to invest in relationships with. And I also love this idea of the classroom as a rehearsal, but it's making me think about Omar, when you first asked the question about going back or, you know, I, I forget how you initially framed it, but the thing that I immediately thought about was time because I think in slowing time down, because I think that there's this desire to kind of like jump back into things sometimes without the acknowledgement that 
that thing that we're jumping back into perhaps wasn't great, or maybe if it was great for us, it wasn't great for everyone. So slowing down kind of like the systems that be that force us to move at this pace that isn't sustainable for ourselves, it isn't sustainable for others, and to really slow that down to see then what is possible. I remember when the pandemic first hit, we would go for hikes, I think almost every day. It got us out of the house. Like I said before, I have two little kids. And I remember saying to my son, Max, that if you kind of stand still in nature, there's always something moving all around you. You just have to be slow enough to see it. Um, so just thinking about what happens when we slow down, what do we see? Um, and I'm thinking about Milagros, even you and I, when we're teaching the class together, um, the amount of time that we pour into each other and that we pour into relationships with our students. And if we're not resisting the pace of the university or the pace of the system, then none of that is possible. That is so, so beautiful. Um, th thank you all so much for, for sharing uh, your your perspectives. And I, that's such a beautiful way to end. Wow, I, uh, I, I wanna be mindful of everybody's time. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sad that we have to end right now. Um, how, however, um, I would like to, to thank all of you, Danielle, uh, Ronnie, Wilson, thank you so, so much for joining us today and for unpacking what intergroup dialogue is and how it aligns with anti-racist teaching we really appreciate the complexity you brought to the conversation, moving from embodied knowledge, emotions such as love, joy, um, as well as the complicated nature of intersectionality and how it can be a lens for anti-racist teaching. You've all shared such powerful ideas for us to think about to um, advance our learning. And we're just so grateful for your work, for your teaching, for your willingness to share what you know with others. And so just thank you and um, Keep, uh, keep fighting the good fight. We would like to thank our guests, Danielle DeRosa, Ronnie Varghese, and Wilson Okello for bestowing us with a rich perspective and for conveying their continued commitment toward not only sharing love and joy in the classroom, but also teaching and passing it on to their students. As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart. 